Pull Up a Chair, a new podcast from Amsterdam outlet The Correspondent, where journalists and readers meet. The Correspondent is an antidote to the daily news grind. While the news amplifies the outliers that took place today, we work to uncover what takes place every day to better understand the world we live in. Pull Up a Chair is not so much an interview, but more of a conversation. It's the chance for a correspondent to sit down and talk with someone they're fascinated by. They get to speak one-on-one about a shared passion. This week, we're in Washington, D.C., and Jay Rosen of NYU will be leading the conversation. Jay has long challenged the press to draw on the knowledge and perspectives of the people it serves. He's a big admirer of David Farenthold, reporter for The Washington Post. David takes old-school reporting, invites readers in using Twitter, and then adds some serious backbone. Add it all together, and you get David's truth machine and a Pulitzer. Today, Jay asks David to pull up a chair. Hi, I'm Jay Rosen, and I am here with David Farenthold of The Washington Post. We are at the Hamilton Hotel, which is at uh, 14th and K Street in downtown D.C., right around the corner from The Washington Post, right, David? Right next to The Washington Post. Right next to The Washington Post. And they order drinks. Listeners will want to know that David was just delivered a Samuel Adams draft beer. This is the small, it's about the 32-ounce size. The the big one must be a bucket. It must have a handle. And and I have a glass of Pinot Noir. Now Jay can finally ask David about the one aspect of his work he's most interested in, his use of social media to invite the public into his reporting. My informal title for this uh, podcast is Help Us Investigate Three of the Most Powerful Words in Journalism. (laughs) And I want to focus in this conversation on what Marty Barron your editor, called the Farenthold Method, Mm -hmm. which is essentially asking readers to help you um, investigate Donald Trump's charitable giving Mm -hmm. and maybe a couple other things Mm -hmm. since then, right? Right. Uh, But before I get to that, uh, I want to do a quick uh, sort of bio for you. Um, You're 39, right, David? That's right. You were born in Houston. Mm -hmm. You went to Harvard? Went to Harvard, that's right. Um, And you joined the Post right out of Harvard? Right out of college, summer intern and summer of 2000. So the Post is the only place you've worked. I mean, I was summer interns at the I was summer intern at the Seattle Times and the Times Picayune in New Orleans. But as a professional full time person, I've only ever worked here. I only worked in the same room at the Washington Post for a long time until we moved buildings. So now at least I've had that kind of diversity. I've been in two rooms. Okay. So it sounds like you're a diehard newspaper journalism person. Yeah. Always why, have been. Why newspaper journalism? Uh, I got into it sort of by accident in college. I thought I wanted to be a humor writer, but then I went to the Harvard Lampoon and they passed out a sheet of jokes that they said were not funny. Mm. And all the kinds of jokes I knew how to make were on that sheet, so I figured I had to go do something else. So I got into it because I was curious, because it was, it was some place where if you saw something in the world that made you mad or made you interested, you had the license. Journalism was this great license to go figure out what the problem was, right? Mm-hmm. To go, just to go ask people why things are the way they are and why things aren't, if things outrage you, why they aren't better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got, and also I, I love the short attention span, right? You write something yeah. today. In the old days, you write something today, it's in the paper tomorrow. It seemed like instantaneous. Now you write it today, it's on the web today. I yeah. love that kind of quick reaction. That's one thing that people don't know uh, about journalists a lot, I think, is that they, they self-select for that particular quality you just named, yes. where in the minds of a lot of reporters, the fact that you can forget about what you did yesterday and go on to it is not a bug. It's a feature. Right. Right. That's a good thing. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, okay. Uh, and um, well, what did you work on today? Today... We're doing a story now about, so I cover the Trump organization now, the hotels, the golf courses, that sort of thing. So uh, I'm sort of working on two things today. Who's giving Trump money? Who's paying him to use his hotels and golf courses? So trying to compile a, a list of his customers and whether those customers are coming back. And we're really interested in um, the ways in which he has turned his, his political base is basically the inverse of his old customer base, right? His political base is exurban, rural, resentful, down market. That's the people he counts as his closest supporters. Mm-hmm. The people who he, who he needs to run his golf courses and hotels are coastal, elite, wealthy. They're people who live around liberal enclaves, even if they're not liberal themselves. So uh, one great example of how he has grabbed one, the political base at the expense of the customer base is the NBA. Trump has a ton of, of NBA teams that stayed at Trump Soho, his hotel in downtown uh, New York. 
and it, because it's sort of it's a fancy hotel and it, NBA teams because they're smaller can afford to stay at nicer places than NFL teams and also it's it's located centrally between where the Knicks play in Manhattan and where the Nets play in Brooklyn so if you want to play a back-to-back series against Knicks and Nets it's right in the middle so he had a lot of teams staying there as recently as 2014 and we're trying to figure out what happened to them did they come back have they quit you know and have they deprived Trump both of the revenue that comes in from a, a team staying there but also the buzz so much of the of the Trump hotel lifestyle is right. pay money you you know person from from out of town come into town and you can live the like luxurious jet setter lifestyle that's what for I'm for a night that's what uh, I'm renting you yeah. for $800 or $1300 right. a night and what more physical proof could could you have of that than the John NBA Wall teams. the Wizards yeah, yeah they're in the lobby you know some team like the coolest people you can imagine there in the uh, in the lobby right. so that's it's for him like it's not just money it's it's credibility it's it's a lifestyle that he's selling people and the NBA was sort of emblematic of that if he's losing those people I'm really interested in what that means for his business. Obviously, it's very important whether Trump is being paid by people at the D.C. hotel and other places that want something from the government. To me, it's also really interesting where he's losing business and where his businesses could be in jeopardy. I love it. Um, now, this is really interesting, the story that you said you're working on today, because, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a story that could benefit from well-placed readers with interesting information it, right. And it already has. In fact, we did a call out about a week ago saying, you know, have you seen, uh, you know, so this is aimed both at just regular people who may really follow NBA teams and follow them on Instagram, things like that. But also at NBA beat writers, you know, have you seen what teams have you seen staying at Trump Soho and Trump in um, Trump Chicago is a hotel in Chicago that a few teams use. And the response has been great. A lot of these teams have just been totally loath to tell us anything that they were ever there. They like to pretend like they never went there. They don't know, know what you're talking about. Mm. Um, and because of a lot of fan uh, and sports writer responses, mm. we've been able to figure out who was actually there. That's been tremendous. And so are they avoiding these hotels? Uh, yes, as far as we can tell, we're trying to nail down exactly how many of them are, I mean, whether it's a complete wipeout or whether any of them are going back. But yes, the answer is that there are the, many of them, the NBA teams, plus a few, the handful of NHL and Major League Baseball teams that also went there, the, in, at least the majority of them seem to be gone. You know, that story has almost everything in it. It's got politics, it's got money, it's got culture and style, right. celebrity, sports, race. Yeah. It, That's amazing. It's a really, it's been a really interesting story, uh, and I'm I'm fascinated by the degree to which the people that Trump cultivated the most, right? If you, it's funny if you read all TripAdvisor reviews of the Trump Soho, people will say in one breath, "Oh man, I saw the Indiana Pacers in the lobby," and also like. I felt like that staff was taking care of the Indiana Pacers and neglecting me. So you could tell that they were the most valued customers Trump had. And now you look at the anthem protests, you look at all this stuff, they are his enemies. They, it's, the, it's an exaggerated case of the way Trump has made his old customers into his new political enemies. They're yeah. at the heart of one, now at the heart of the other. Yeah. I never thought I would see a president whose political style involves making enemies. Mm-hmm. That, that's unusual for a president to I, take that approach. It certainly, I mean, Nixon might have been the closest we've had to that. Maybe, but Nixon's yeah. enemies were more closer to him, people that he knew, not sort of... Yeah, and a lot of it was private. Mm-hmm. Right, it was not a public enemies list. Yeah, um, very interesting. Okay, so let me take a few minutes here and explain to you why I'm so interested in this subject of help us investigate. Um, and it goes back to... 1996, when you were probably in your first year at Harvard, mm -hmm. uh, and the web magazine Salon.com was born, in mm -hmm. one of the first internet-based publications. And I got a call one day from an editor there asking me to write for Salon. And he asked me, do you want to write for this new magazine, Salon? It's an internet magazine. And I said, what's an internet <laughs> magazine? I didn't know anything about it. And so he gave me the address and I checked it out. And I, th I thought it was very interesting, but I wasn't sure I wanted to write for it. But the thing that I found most interesting was they had a comment section <laughs> called Table Talk, like we're doing now. Uh -huh. And the comment section was very well designed, so it looked as professional as the articles did. Mm -hmm. And the more I checked it out, the more I saw there were a lot of smart people in this comment section. Sean's always been good at that. Yeah. And I said, this is, this is pretty cool because I had been studying for 15 years participation in journalism. I did my dissertation partly about that. Mm -hmm. So I 
turned down the invite to write, but I decided to start hanging out in the comment section because I knew the internet was something I wanted to learn about and this was a good way to do it. So the more I hung out there and I, and I used my own name and I told people I was a journalism professor and they're like, what are you doing here? This is, this is the comment section, you know? And I said, well, I'm, I'm sort of studying, you know, online interaction. Oh, so you're studying us? No, I'm just trying to be part of the community, right? Eventually it got so that people were flaming me so much I eventually had to leave. But <laughs> before that, um, the editors of Salon were also in the comment section, which was very cool on their part because they wanted to n understand their readers. Right. And I, and I knew them a little bit. Some of the people who had started Salon were refugees from the San Francisco journalism community. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, you know, the people in Table Talk really have a lot of knowledge and they're having some really smart discussions about things going on right now. You should see if you could hook up some of the writers for Salon with some of the smarter people in this comment section because as a force multiplier, that might really have some advantages for your journalism. And it was really interesting. They did not like that idea at all. <laughs> Even though they were like alternative press people, they consider themselves much less stuffy than the newspaper editors that used to hire them, right? Mm -hmm. But... That wasn't their idea. Yeah, there's a line there. There's a line there. And also, the comment section, that's your space. This is our space where we publish the articles. Right? Mm -hmm. So that was, that was really interesting to say. Hmm. Then three years later, um, do, you, do you remember the publication still around called Slashdot? I've heard of it. I'm not sure I've ever read it. Okay. So it was a tech journal website that had uh, articles and it also had very knowledgeable readers who discussed issues in technology. And it was very advanced for its time in um, cultivating a real community of people. Uh, also having comment sections that you could filter, um, like have a bozo filter where you can, you can um, take people out of the conversation, mm -hmm. just see what it looks like when you take the worst voices out. Um, and they had a very advanced community. So in 1999... Um, Jane's Intelligence Weekly, which was a trade publication that followed like the intelligence mm -hmm. world, wanted to do an article on cyber terrorism. And somehow they had a connection to Slashdot. And the editor had this brilliant idea of floating a draft of this article to the community at Slashdot hmm. to see if they had knowledge that could improve the article. Oh, that's interesting. And it turned out they did. And people, so they put a draft of the article in, in the, the comment side, section, in the comment section, huh. and said, "Take your best shot." Uh -huh. And the result was a rewritten draft that was vastly improved. Wow. And the editors thanked <coughs> the contributors from Slashdot, and actually added the names of the most important contributions, like to the to the credits of wow. the article. Yeah. And then Salon Magazine wrote a piece about this experiment, mm -hmm. which it titled Open Source Journalism, mm. 1999. Wow. I read this article. I go, man, this is interesting. This is exciting because there's a possible method there that I think could be quite potent. Mm -hmm. Same year, 1999, my friend Dan Gilmer, who was one of the first newspaper journalists to have a blog. He was a San Jose Mercury News Silicon Valley correspondent. Mm -hmm. He talked his newspaper into giving a blog before there was blogging software. He said something that still resonates with me, which was, my readers know more than I do. Mm -hmm. Something you've learned, mm -hmm. right? My readers know more than I do. I think it's like a brilliant remark and has lots of implications. Although we have to put an asterisk on it, which is sometimes they know more. Right. Some of the readers sometimes <laughs> know more. Right. There's lots of stories where they don't know more than you um, and, and nobody could. So... And then, um, like, uh, 2006, I started to run some of my own experiments in this. Uh, I collaborated with Wired Magazine in 2007 on a project we called Assignment Zero. And the, it was like a demonstration project. And the idea was, could you research a trend story with readers as your trend spotters? Hmm. Uh, and the trend we were researching was the way crowdsourcing itself was spreading across the culture and becoming a factor in more and more realms, hmm. like T-shirt designs that are crowdsourced hmm. and science that was crowdsourced, right? Um, and since this was a widely distributed development, 
it takes people all over the place, many different parts of the culture, to report on it. To see it. To see it, yeah. Um, so I learned a lot from that experiment. Even though it really wasn't very successful, I learned one very important thing, which is, and I, I don't want to ask you about this later. When you put out a call for people to participate, send us information. If the call succeeds mm -hmm. and lots of people collaborate with you, now you've got a problem, which is you have to organize all that information. Right. And a lot of it's not very useful. And filter it. And right. filter it. And now you've got, you got a new problem. And if, right. you, if you didn't think about that before, <laughs> right. you could be, right? Um, okay, so I learned that. Then, um, then I kept writing about it. Uh, and uh, the same idea sort of trans transfigured itself into an, an, another way of thinking about it, which is uh, the idea of a networked beat, which I still think is a really promising idea. Mm -hmm. A, imagine a beat with a reporter at the center and then a network of knowledgeable people who are connected to that beat who mm -hmm. help the reporter do the job. Right. Which is sort of what you created without necessarily intending to at the beginning. I mean, and, and so the analog version of that would be any good beat reporter should have something like that, but you, you know, people sort of don't create it on purpose. It kind of occurs naturally. If, yeah. you're, if you, you would create these relationships one-on-one -on -one with readers who you, you talked to or you called, this is, is a much faster way of doing it now. Much faster way of doing it and instead of the old-fashioned beat, each source having a relationship with the reporter, in a network beat, they can also be connected to one another. Right. That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wrote about that uh, and tried to get people interested in, in, uh, in trying a networked beat. Didn't really succeed at that. But the reason I think this is so important for journalism is Dan Gilmore is right. Sometimes readers know more. Mm -hmm. than journalists. Absolutely. Do. And with the internet, it's plausible that they can reach the journalist with that knowledge. Right. Right. And the um, the the network goes two ways. The internet mm -hmm. goes both ways. It goes out from you to them and it goes in from them to you. Right. Okay. So that's that's the reason that I wanted to ask you uh, questions about your your methods. So let's start. When did you join Twitter? And what did you think of it when you began? Uh, I must have joined it in 2009, 2010. But the first many years I was on it, I was, I mean, I'm a political reporter. So, and I had covered Congress and presidential campaigns in 2012 and other things. So, like, that's where the political reporters have their conversation. You feel like you can't be part of political journalism without being on Twitter because it's sort of where breaking news happens. It's where people's opinions are thrown out. You just can't keep track of the field unless you're on Twitter. But I was a lurker. I mean, I, I, if I posted at all, I posted, you know, I reposted my stories or other people's stories. I would sometimes post something stupid about the Astros or something. You know, I would have some sort of like my own life tweets, but I was not trying to reach an audience and I had a very small audience. I was mm -hmm. using it mostly as a way for me to observe the world. Okay. So mostly it was who you were following and what you were picking up by listening to them. Yeah, just feeling you, you feel like you were left out. If covering even 2012 race, Romney versus Obama, if you were not watching Twitter during the debates, you missed sort of consensus is forming about right. what happened during the debates, which is important to know. Even if you don't believe it, it's important to know people think the consensus, and you could only watch that on Twitter. Right. Do you think there would be advantage in not knowing the consensus? Yes, there would be an advantage. I, and I thought about that like in the last... Um, Last, camp last campaign in 2016, I was the person who was writing our stories about the debates, which was a new experience. And I tried to stay off Twitter. And it was interesting for me. We were doing this sort of experiment where we were trying to update the story like 15 times in the course of a two-hour debate. So it was like every few minutes, I would put a new top on the story, a new lead, first two paragraphs, send it off, just based on what had just happened. So there wasn't really time for me to like absorb what everyone else was getting away from right. it. So I'm just watching it, telling you, you know, what I think happened. It was interesting for me to go back and see often how divergent I was from the consensus. Yeah. For better or worse. I'm not sure I was smarter. I was just different. You know, I did that myself. You know, I, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and mm -hmm. I have 200,000 followers. So there's, you know, there's some community there. Yeah. And, um, and during the debates, I would turn off my laptop because I didn't want to hear what people were saying was happening while it was happening because mm -hmm. I wanted to react as a citizen. Right. And then afterwards, my, I'd go back. Um, so at that point that you joined Twitter around 2009, what sort of things had you reported on? 
at that point, so I, I had been, um, so been, as we said, I've been on the post since 2000. So I've done, uh, I haven't done foreign, I haven't done war correspondency. I've done a couple, I've done a lot of other things. So I would have started as a night cops reporter. I covered homicides in the middle of the night in D.C. I covered the environment for a long time, so the Chesapeake Bay, and then sort of climate change, um, oil spills, and things like that. I was the New England correspondent for a year, which was the greatest year of my life, just roaming around New England writing about weird people. And um, I had started covering Congress, or, politics in 2010. So first Congress, then a presidential election, then a couple years on government bureaucracy, 2013, 2014. This actually turned out to be a really useful experience for covering Trump, covering secretive dysfunctional federal agencies and trying mm. to figure out why they were so dysfunctional. Mm. It was a good experience because often the people I was writing about, the agencies I was writing about, did not want to be written about and had the assumption that if they didn't talk to me, they could stop the story from being written. So it was, it was a good training in reporting around an uncooperative subject, yeah. um, which was it's been great training for the Trump campaign and now the Trump organization. And so then and I started covering the 2016 campaign back in 2014. And the first year I did sort of features about candidates. So I wanted to be, I wanted to cover candidates. I didn't have to be in a big crowd of reporters. I could really get close to them and get to know them. But that meant basically that I covered losers. So I, I wrote about like Bobby Jindal, Rick Perry, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, people you forgot ran for president. I yeah. spent a lot of time with those people. And it was only by accident, basically because the people I'd covered had all dropped out, that they sent me to cover Trump on a caucus day in Iowa in 2016. That's when I sort of bumbled into this story about Trump's charitable giving. But mm. until then, I, I, didn't, didn't wind, I didn't set out to make this an assignment. I just kind of stumbled on it because I happened to be watching a rally in Waterloo, Iowa, where Trump gave away money out of his charity in a really strange way. And it made me think, oh, I wonder what, you know, I want to learn more about that. Mm. I talked about how the great thing about journalism is if you see something that catches your eye, catches your curiosity, you just have a license to chase it. And that, that was what happened in this case. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're assigned to the 2016 campaign and the Washington Post, you know that there's like 100 other reporters who are covering the campaign and you're going to face a challenge in how do you distinguish yourself. Right. So what was your theory of how to do that? Well, it really changed. In the beginning, it was to write about people that nobody else was writing about. And that was true. I did that. But I, I reached an audience of several hundred in some of these cases. The Bobby Jindal profile did not reach a large audience. Um, it, covering Trump, when I saw him say, so I met this rally in Waterloo, Iowa, and he stands up on stage with this giant check. He stops the rally, theoretically yeah. stops the political rally, and brings up a, a, a veterans group from Waterloo up on the stage. And he gives them this giant check, a golf tournament-sized check, from the Donald J. Trump Foundation for $100,000. And they say, oh, thank you so much, Mr. President. Thanks for this great donation. They sit down, and the rally resumes. That's not something you ever see at a presidential rally right. because the IRS code prohibits people from using charities to help their presidential campaigns. Most people don't try to cross the streams like that. <clears throat> but I, I, I was interested in where that money came from. Mm. And it turned out that Trump had he'd held this rally for veterans a few days earlier in Iowa. He was counter-programming a Fox debate because he was having a feud with Fox. He skipped the debate, had this telethon for veterans. He said he raised $6 million. This was the $100,000 I saw him give away was part of that $6 million. So here's what I was interested in. For me, so much of the frustration of covering Trump then and now is that everything is so slippery. Like there's an undercurrent always that like Trump wants to make himself the arbiter of facts. So he'll say A tomorrow, he'll say the opposite of A today. And right. then he doesn't act like there's a contradiction because in his mind they're not. Whatever, only what's coming out of my mouth right now is the truth. And so, so much of reporters' time was spent sort of grappling with a guy who was not telling the truth or not, not or contradicting himself and like trying to force him sort of to behave by normal standards, but it was all about what he said, what was in his mind. I like the story about the money because it was concrete. There was money, what happened to it? So I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna, I thought, I'm gonna call the Trump campaign and say, who'd you give the $6 million to? What charities got the money? And whatever they said, you know, it would be revealing about the way that they viewed what veterans needed. And also it would just be concrete. There was money, they gave it away, here are the answers. I'm not trying to like, you know, deal with the slippery nature of truth in Donald Trump. I'm dealing with objective facts. Okay. So I started on down that road, not really knowing where it was going to lead. Right. You know, going back to what you said about um, the only thing that exists is what he's saying now. Um, it goes deeper than what you said. That that because that style is really an attack on the whole idea of a public record, mm -hmm. which journalism is based on. If right. there's no public record, there's no journalism. Right. And he is actually trying to kind of erode the whole idea of a public record. So that's why I can see why your attraction to the money, because the money is recorded. It, yeah. Right. And, and 
the great thing about that was there were, uh, you know, Trump wants to make it so that he's the only arbiter of truth about himself, right? right? But in this case, there were two parties that would know, right? If Trump gave money away, he would know, but also the people who got the money would know. And, you know, the... Right. And they would tell you the truth, presumably. And so then you, there was a way of like... Checking. Yeah, checking it with yeah. an objective source. And so I really liked that idea and, yeah. um, and sort of started down that road thinking, okay, this will be a two or three day story. I'll call the Trump people. They'll tell me who got the money. You know, I'll write a story and I'll move on to writing about Hillary or about Ted Cruz or whatever. Um, not realizing that... I didn't really understand how the Trump people worked. And they, they basically not realizing that the idea they would just tell me who he gave the money to was laughably wrong. <laughs> right. So what happened when you decided to dig into this story and your editors let you? Well, at the beginning, I was just trying to figure out what happened to the money and they would, the $6 million. And they, the Trump people wouldn't tell me. They wouldn't give me any details. So I was trying all the ways that I could think of to find out what had happened. So I was calling you know, the main spokesperson, Hope Hicks, but also like uh, Trump's, you know, the veterans advisors, everybody I could find who had, was, had a title connected to the Trump campaign who was a veterans one thing or another. Um, and so, but the editors weren't that interested, right? This was just one of a million Donald Trump stories. So I was still doing Trump, I, mean, I was doing Ted Cruz stories, doing Hillary Clinton stories, and the Trump thing was kind of in the background. Uh, and God bless him, Corey Lewandowski was what uh, elevated all this by um, calling me up in May of last year and saying, okay, so I, I should say of the $6 million that Trump said he was going to give to veterans, $1 million was Trump, was Trump said he would come out of his own pocket. So other people gave $5 million. Him, Donald Trump, gave $1 million. He'd said that on the stage, this telephone. And so Lewandowski calls me and says, okay, and this is May, so months and months later, I can tell you that Donald Trump has given away the million dollars that he promised would come out of his own pocket. But I can't tell you who got it or in what amounts or anything else. It's all secret. Just, just trust that Donald Trump's given his million dollars away. Mm -hmm. So we, we wrote a story saying that Lewandowski said that, but you can't just trust that. Right? You can't just like take his word for it. So right. that's when I was stuck saying, okay, well, how do I prove this right or wrong? You know, how do I find the truth behind whatever Lewandowski said? Um, because, he's, again, he's made a promise about something concrete. If the money's mm -hmm. been given away, there are people out there who have it in their pocket and can tell you they got it. Right. So that's when, that actually was sort of what led me to Twitter out of desperation, was I, I, I didn't know who to call, right? It, journalism usually is a problem of, you know, you can find out anything if you can make enough phone calls. But in this case, right. who do I call? Or if you can get people to return your phone right. calls. Right. But, yeah. the, you know, how many veterans' charities are there in America? Thousands and thousands. That's when I remember picking up your scent mm -hmm. uh, was will call out you sent on Twitter, I mm -hmm. think. Does anyone know anything about which veterans organizations would likely receive this money, right? right. Something like that. And it's funny looking back at that, um, at that moment. I thought at the time, like, oh, this is, you know, I, at the time I, I first announced this, I was doing this, like the first tweet got like two retweets, right? I had no, yeah. no one was paying attention, no one who I was, but I, I spent a day basically tweeting out to anybody I could think of that had anything to do with veterans. So veterans groups and veterans magazines and celebrities who had veterans followings saying like, hey, pass this out far mm. and wide. I want to find anybody who got even $1 of this million dollars mm. from Donald Trump. You know, let's just find the tip of the iceberg. Like, yeah. it, you know, I'm not going to find all million dollars this way, but I might find somebody who got some of the money. Then we can trust a little more that Donald Trump really gave the money away. So like, I spent that whole day, like the questions I would have sent out or I would have asked charities over email or I would have asked him the phone call. I just did it over Twitter because it was public and I wanted Trump to see and I included Trump's handle and all the queries and I wanted other people to see that I was doing this um, and at the end of that day, like I started at 10 in the morning, I ended at 6, I hadn't found any money at all. Everybody that had gotten back to me said no we haven't gotten the money and at the time I thought this Twitter thing is a giant waste of time. Like, look, I've just spent this whole day tweeting into the ether. Nobody noticed. I didn't find any of the money. What a, you know, this was stupid. Um, and it was not until that night uh, that Trump, basically what happened was Trump, had, had, he had been paying attention. Like, I had been hoping to reach him because he was the person who would really know. Yeah. And, and it turned out that night, he actually gave the money away. Oh, really? So the million dollars that Lewandowski told me he'd given away, it was completely false. The money was still in Trump's pocket. Um, only after I made this public search did Donald Trump actually give the money away. Hmm. And that's when I realized, okay, wow, this is really, this is something. You know, this is, this is not only a way of reaching new people, it's a way of, like, making what previously had been for Trump a way of turning off the story, just silence, non-reaction. It had been a way of making his non-reaction into the story mm -hmm. and getting over that wall. Uh, and that was really a big moment for me. I learned a lot in that. Yeah, and it's accountability journalism in a fast cycle. Right, absolutely. And people, one thing I learned about this is people like, like they make movies about journalists, right? People like, sure. people like, like 
just know, like they make movies about cops and detectives and people like the chase, right? Yeah, you know, they they hunting. like they like the hunt. They like yeah. the, like having a mystery and seeing the mystery solved, right? Yeah. So a like, quest. Yeah, even this, which was like not, it wasn't like I was solving a murder. It was a pretty mundane sort of thing. People were interested in this guy who was looking for this thing and couldn't find it. Right, because if somebody's looking for something and it's not showing up, everyone can sort of identify with that. Yeah, but it, also, it's like. What's going to happen? It's the simplest sort of story, yeah. right? Like, I'm looking for a thing. Is this guy going to find it or not? People were really interested in that in a way that surprised me. Yeah. Okay. So how did the idea of the handwritten notes posted and photographed and posted on Twitter come about? Well, so Trump gave the million dollars away. And then he had this angry press conference at Trump Tower where he denounced the media for making him basically account for the money that he'd said he was going give, to gonna give away. He acted so petulant about it that my editor said, Marty Barron said, well, okay, let's go back and see what's he been doing before this. You know, when he was just a rich guy, was he promising money to people and then not giving it away? And so we went back and looked, and indeed, he had been promising lots of money to lots of people. He, started, he said, I'll, I'll, give the, I'll give away the proceeds of the Celebrity Apprentice. I'll give away, away the proceeds of Trump University. One of the interesting things about Trump is that, like, he, he, there's two sides of his public appeal when, when he, in his rich guy phase, right? One of which was, I'm so rich, I don't need any more money. I'm like Richie Rich, I'm Scrooge right. McDuck, I'm Bruce Wayne, I'm impossibly rich. Like, the first line of the art of the deal is, I have so much more money, so much money, I don't know what to do with more. I don't need more. Okay, so that's one side. He has so much money, he doesn't need more. On the other hand, he's always asking for your money, right? He's always, he wants you to buy a book, he wants you to buy a game. So how does he square those two seemingly contradictory sides of his personality? He would always say, well, I'm not doing it for me, I'm doing it for charity. And he would never say which charity, but he would say, I'm doing it for charity. So there were all these times where Trump had promised to give money to charity. And so, yes, let's go back and figure out whether he did give it away. So I started thinking of any, the Trump campaign, of course, would not help me at all. I started thinking of all the charities that it seemed like if Trump was going to give money to anybody, he would have given money to these people. So people that like had galas at Mar-a-Lago or he tweeted about them or he had some personal connection to them, calling them to see if they got the money. And when I had a couple of hundred, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to make a list and, I, and I'm going to write it down on a piece of legal, pa legal, legal pad and post pictures on Twitter. Why legal pad? Why write it down? Why not on your computer? Well, it's funny. I, I was also writing it down on the computer. I don't want to, it's young uh -huh. journalists who listen to this, you should definitely make a Google spreadsheet. You should not write it down on something where if you spill coffee, you'll lose all your notes. Um, but I was actually mocked by the post social media staff that day. I was like, hey, you know. Really? I, I, like, I, I was like, I'd like a retweet from the main account, the main Twitter account. I'm going to be taking pictures of my notebook, you know. And they're like, I'm taking pictures of a notebook. Like, how dumb is that? Really? But, yeah. But the thing was. Wow. It, it, you can get a couple of reasons. You can get a lot more information into a picture of a notepad than you can into a tweet, right? And so, I, and I color, totally. I color coded the, the notes so that like all the no, all the no, he never gave us money. That was one color, and if he ever did give money, that was a different color. So at a glance, you could sort of see the point of the mm -hmm. list that he hadn't given money. Um, but also, it, it, it stands out, right? In your social media yeah. feed, there's nothing that looks like that. Nobody else is posting pictures of a notebook, and it looks like work. It looks yeah. like it looks like somebody, which is what I wanted to communicate. But look how hard I'm working in this case to prove Donald Trump right. I'm looking for evidence that when he told you he gave his money away, he wasn't lying. It was real, and so I think people like that. And it was, if I felt like if you were lost, if your reader just sort of lost in the like constant tornado of news, that you might say like, oh yeah, that notebook guy. Like there he there he goes. I just scrolled by him. Like I remember what he's doing. I can catch up to him now because there's nobody else out there that looks like him. Yeah. Well, it also. Um, gives people a sense of what's involved in journalism. Mm -hmm. it, um, it shows that it's a lot more intricate than just showing up at a press conference and shouting a question at somebody. Yeah. Right? Uh, and it's, it also underlines the frustration of journalism. <laughs> yes, right? yes, exactly. When people aren't giving you answers and you're not actually getting anywhere. Right. Uh, and I think the, the thing that was most potent for me was... It's the hand of the reporter. It's, mm -hmm. it's a human being. Mm -hmm. It's not the Washington Post. Right. It's not an institution. It's, a, it's the hand of a person who's like struggling to find out what's going on here. And with a little thought, not a lot, just a little thought, the reader, the person on social media who encounters this can figure out or intuit, well, who are they struggling for? Well, it's not really the Washington Post. It's, it's for the public. It's... Right. Right? It's for you, the reader. I'm, trying yeah. to make, I'm, I'm doing this for you, and I'm also doing this to make it clear to you how hard I'm working. I want you to trust what I find, so I'm going to show you the work that goes into it. Okay. So 
that's how these pictures of your handwritten call lists and uh, request lists got started, and you you began to use that as a method. So when you started doing that, what were the results? Well, people started paying attention. I mean, there was a while in which people were sort of slowly catching on to this. I was still wasn't, you know, as I was adding names to the list, I still wasn't finding any money that Trump had actually given away. Um, but I started getting suggestions from people. Mm-hmm. Trump had this habit. I, I mentioned Bruce Wayne earlier. Like, I think that was sort of his role model. He, he knew that to be sort of the Manhattan rich playboy type, that there was an expectation that you would be sort of spontaneously generous or extravagantly. The same way you were sort of extravagantly wealthy, you'd be extravagantly generous. And so Trump would have had times that I, could, I hadn't found in my searches where he would say, he'd go on a game show and be like, oh, you know, that's a, such a sad story, I'm going to give you $10,000. Or he would say, he would promise on Twitter to give people money. So there were times when he'd made promises to different people that I hadn't found, people mm-hmm. came to ah, me with. So more promises started coming. Yeah, and, and also I wanted people, and there was some, I had some success, success with this. I was saying, look, if you like Trump, if you think Trump is a great guy and he has given money away, send me what you heard, you know, send me, right. you know, and so people did. People said, well, you know, I heard he gave money to this or that, and I would run them down. And in the beginning, I, I really didn't know where this was going to lead. You know, I, it seemed like, it ever, you know, he'd made so many promises that I thought, well, some of them have to be true. And that I, I figured that after people, someone would say, well, I heard he gave a million dollars to the YMCA of New York, you know, last year, and I'd check it out and it would be true. And then, I don't know, I would sort of roll the, you know, pack up the tent and I'd go write about Ted Cruz again. You know, my search for Donald Trump's charitable giving would be over. Um, and there were times when people would, see, would say that. They were certain that Donald Trump had given money to X or Y. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I would think, oh man, this is it. Maybe this mm. is really the thing. Yeah. After a while of all those sort of coming up as sort of false leads, I started to think like, well, I know you're wrong. I'm sure you're wrong, but, I, I'm interested, but I'll check it out. Yeah, I'm interested in why you think that's true. You know, there's got to be a story uh-huh. there. Uh, so, it, and along the way, I sort of started finding weird little side stories, you know, backstories that, that were related to this. So, like, he used uh, $20,000 from his charity. He had a charity called the Donald J. Trump Foundation, which was actually full of other people's money. It sounds like it was his money, but it wasn't. And he would use it, the money in that foundation to buy things for himself, which you're not allowed to do, right. including, a, like, a $20,000 portrait of himself. Or, I should say, a portrait of himself for which he paid $20,000. I can't really tell you it's a $20,000 portrait. Uh, and so every time I would write sort of about one of those one-off weird stories, I'd post a link to the story and also post a picture of the notebook on which that line, you know, the, the line that pertained to that story. Because I want everybody to, who's following this to see, like, these are not disconnected stories. There's all, right. They're connected all together. Story. And the notebook is a sign that it's all connected as part of one, right. same, one main story. Right. You know, one thing that really interests me about you, what you said, David, is... One of the mysteries for me in this this longer story that I unfolded from 1996 to the present, I'll help us investigate journalism, is lots of professional reporters, most, are reluctant to, to work this way. And one of the reasons, of course, is that they think information from the public is unreliable. And a lot of times it is. Yeah, it is. But your story suggests that... Even the unreliable information that you get coming in can move the story forward. Yes. Because checking it out and proving to somebody that actually they were fooled by Trump also advances the story. Absolutely. I mean, in that case, you know, A, you don't know till you check it, right? So some of the, some of the stuff, you, you don't know if it's real or not till you check it out. And you're right. So even the false positives, often there was a story there that was revealing about Trump in one way or another. Like it, there was a time in which he, I forget the name of the organization, but it's like an organization dedicated to sort of the, the welfare of Israeli soldiers. Like it provides like R&R programs for Israeli soldiers. They had, somebody sent me this news article of a banquet for this organization that Trump had gone to um, and in sort of a, a spontaneous show of generosity had gotten up and said, I, I'll pay $275,000, I'll donate $275,000. Wow, okay, that's a real, unlike most of Trump's promises, that's a specific promise of dollar amounts to a specific organization. Mm-hmm. You think more likely to have been paid. Okay, wow, maybe this is it. I found right. something real. Somebody else paid. So I called the organization. They said, yeah, Trump, Trump pledged that, but somebody else, they wouldn't tell me who, paid his pledge. Fascinating, right? Yeah. Like you learn a lot from those things because there's a, there's often a ba- in his case there was often a backstory of how he made the switch where he got the credit but somebody else paid. Right. So it's not just that the public has to have reliable information; they they have good questions. Yeah, and, and then provocations. Right. As a as a journalist, 
you st- when you crowdsource information like this, you still always have to make yourself the filter between what's right. coming in and what's going back out. Okay. But the more that c- that's coming in, I mean, like any great beat reporter, you want the most information coming in as possible. You only succeed by filtering through a lot of information. So even you want as many tips as you can get, as long as they're given sincerely. Right. Um, and a lot of them v- yield really valuable information, even if they're not exactly what the reader thought they were when they turned them in. Right. So many reporters confronted with these method help us investigate would hesitate for one simple reason which I took me like 15 years to learn this which is someone's going to steal my story Mm -hmm. the fear that someone would steal your story why didn't you fear that I I did fear it uh, actually but I felt like by the time that I started doing it I didn't see another way to get the story right. It, it, the, there, the doing it in private was not gonna. Um, I was not gonna get anywhere, and so I was willing to take the risk that somebody else would steal my story or would beat me on it, just because I didn't see any other way of getting where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 thing that Trump has always done, and I'm seeing this in his organization, his company now as well as in his charity, was. He's so secretive and he makes everything so hard to find that, like, the information, as a reporter, if you set out to go find out about Donald Trump, often you don't know what the first step is, right? Like, you know, I know I want this thing, but I don't know what the, I don't know the first call, I don't know the first Mm -hmm. step. That bridge is just cut off. And so the only way sometimes you can get it is by asking the public and finding someone with the context that you don't have. Mm And also, I feel like if somebody does sometimes beat me, and this has happened a lot more this year covering the Trump organization than it did last year. That's fine. Like, we're all in pursuit of the same truth. We're all in pursuit of more information about this guy who's been so secretive. So, like, if the New York Times beats me or the Palm Beach Post beats me on something, fine. I'll beat them the next time. Like, you know, they give, you know, I want a lead. What I want is the lead to answer my questions. And if that lead comes from another newspaper story beating me, fine, I'll take it. You know, it's better than nothing. On that exact point, one thing I noticed as you started to get rolling with this method and more people started to follow you, and it became something of a journalism story, was something I, I don't think I've ever seen this before, where other journalists at other news organizations started to like root for Farenthal <laughs> to find out what happened to this money, and began to take on your work as almost like a badge of honor for the profession as a whole because it was such a public struggle to get simple answers to these questions. Did you notice that happening after a certain point? Yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, I I think I've really tried to, like, in my demeanor, you know, in public and on social media, to do as much as I can to lift up other journalists just because I think I'll always need the return. You do do that a lot. I see that. I mean, I'll need the return favor at some point, right? I want these people to like me because often I'm going to need their help or their assistance later on. Um, But it was great. I feel like there's so much criticism of journalists now. To be That's in a position, an understatement. Yeah, to be in a position where I, I can sort of, you know, be a mascot for people and lift up people that are doing the same thing I am. Um, it's, it's wonderful. It's been a cool opportunity. It won't last forever. I'm trying to sort of take advantage of it. Okay, let's look forward a little bit now. Um, how do we push these methods, the more transparent method of political campaign reporting, which the Pulitzer Committee cited when it gave you the uh, 2017 prize for national reporting for Pulitzer, um, or help us investigate open source journalism, as I've called it. How do we push these methods forward? What stands in the way of further progress? What do we have to do, invent, uh, solve to get better at this? Well, two things. One is the is about sort of like on my end, what do I do? I've had to become so much more conscious of my organiza- organization of information, right? One of the great things about this thing is this technique is it brings in lots of information and it and it and to do it well you need to have assembled a lot of information on your own so right. i feel like you can't you can't ask the public for help until you feel like you've pushed yourself to the limit of what you can do given the sort the tools that a reporter has right so you you can't just ask you can't like barge in ignorant to a story and ask, right. say like hey somebody explain you know whatever to me uh you have to be an, you have to be as much of an expert as you can be before you ask for help, and that means organizing a lot of information to track all these like you know disparate subjects. 
and then you have to have a method for when if, if you're trying to make a database of something, if you're trying to assemble a lot of dis disparate information that people are sending in, you have to way of a way of organizing it and showing that organization to the public, right? Helping people follow along means finding a way of giving them a sense that the story is advancing. Right. And so that means creating something that like could be a story, could be a traditional newspaper story, could be a blog post, but you have to give them some way of seeing progress, right? Yes. And I think that's... Seeing progress. That's a great part. That's one thing point. that I struggled with last year and I've struggled with this year to like find a way of, of showing people, look, thanks to you, this story is advancing. Here's how you can... I can show you. Um, so that that to me has been the, the the biggest challenge is finding a way to organize information both for me to, so I can find things again and don't lose the benefit of the stuff that's coming in because I don't I, I don't write it down, mm -hmm. but also to show people in a way that makes sense to them. Look, here's how we're adding facts. You know, we're we're not building a sandcastle that's going to get washed away. We're building something that's sturdy and factual. But here's how to understand it. Okay, I don't know if you can answer this, but. I want to ask you anyway, is there a, a tool or a, a technology or a piece of software or a system you wish you had to make this easier? You know, I, that's one thing I've really challenged myself to get better at this year is, is like finding tools. And I've, I haven't done as much, as much of a good job as I'd like. I've heard things like Evernote and OneNote are really good at organizing right. information. I'm a really big Google Spreadsheets person. I do a lot of my like data on Google Spreadsheets. So... That's what the main thing that I use, um, but it's imperfect. Um, so I'm still not as good on that subject as I should be. What if you had a technologist, a, uh, a geek working alongside you? So we, we do have a really good data editor, Stephen Rich, who works at The Post, who's done things like, um, you know, uh, automating scrapers, right? So, like, Trump every year asks for... Um, Department of Labor to grant visas to foreign workers that come work at Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago staff is almost entirely foreign, um, imported as temporary workers. So, like, we don't want to get beat on that, right? So we have to we have to build a system that will scrape the uh, scrape the Department of Labor website every I don't know how often and tell us as soon as it comes out. That was a great idea. It worked great until the um, alert went to my spam filter and somebody else beat us on the story. <laughs> so, so we're working on that now. I'm I'm trying to automate things like you know database of Trump's club members. We have a lot of those people now. Like, how do I automate searching for them in the news? You know, mm -hmm. besides like me sitting there and running, running every name of anybody who might be connected to a Trump story. Um, how do I, like I, we now have a database of Trump's customers, the, the um, companies and charities that pay him to rent out his various clubs. You know, if one of those decides that the heat's too hot, they're going to back out of Mar-a-Lago. They're going to back out of mm -hmm. a golf tournament. Like, how do I keep track of that? How do I not miss that? And, you know, I'm trying Google alerts and other things like that. But it's like I have so much information that I'm trying to, like, constantly watch for updates. And that's the part that I need to automate more than I have. Very interesting. Last question. Um, somewhere out there listening to this podcast is a young journalist who might think he or she wants to distinguish herself by specializing in these methods, which in my view, would be a very smart idea. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to a person who wants to start out as a help us investigate, open source, transparent, let the public help type journalist? Uh, well, A, it's a lot of fun. Um, the, the thing I would say, I have two main pieces of advice about this. Um, one, well, three, I guess. One is what I said earlier, that you have to, you have to do your homework before you can ask Take anybody. Take the story as far as you can as far as you before can. you ask for help. When you ask for help, ask for something specific, right? Ask for something, you know, I'm, I, you know, you can't just say, you know, tell me everything you know about Donald Trump's charitable giving. You have to right. say, like, you know, has anybody seen an NBA team staying at this particular hotel? Has anybody seen this portrait? Otherwise, the, you know, you're, you'll get a lot of crap and not, not, nothing that's that useful. So, so um, you know, be specific. Uh, and then the third thing is just a more general approach to this, to, to, to writing and reporting on a beat that I think this is part of. You have to be conscious of the fact that your your readers are bombarded by so much, so many news sources, so many news right. events. They they lose the thread, right? We all do that. Any any story you care about, there's times when you get distracted and you lose the thread. And the the tool that we previously had to you know, the, the way we usually wrote for those people was something that was straight out of newspapers, paper newspapers, which is like 
okay, I'm going to write a story that tells you everything that you need to know right there that I know right now. And then at some indeterminate time in the future, which you have no, you as a reader have no way of anticipating, I will write another story right. summarizing what I know then. Right. And if in the, in the meantime, between those two things, you come to the newspaper and say, I wonder what's going what? on with, like, yeah. all you get is my two week old no story. And, and you have no idea if that's the end of it or if it's something else, right? That's something that was written when all we had was the print paper. Correct. So you have to be conscious of giving people a way to follow your thread. And so that's mm. that social media, you know, what things that I've been doing, giving people a way to follow the granular details of your reporting between stories. But also one thing that I think we at The Post are catching up with, but other people like Fox have done better, is you have to create content specifically for people who have lost the thread and are trying to catch up. Your readers who care about your thing, and but like have lost the what's going on. So you write something that says, okay, I can guarantee you at this moment you're reading it. This is the most current version of that story. So read this. Like you think about it, when all the charities started quitting Mar-a-Lago this summer. Every day some new charity quit. It was kind of confusing. So we did a Q&A that we updated all the time. You know, who's left? Who hasn't left? It's a lot of work to do that, but like you want people to feel like, okay, like, you know, I'm caught up. Yeah. I can now follow the rest of it. Cuz if you want people to help you and they talk back to you, they have to feel like they're caught up in what's going on and what you need. You can't mm-hmm. leave them sort of guessing as to what you need because you haven't written anything in a week. Um, that's a, those are all really important things, I think, to this process. Excellent. And that's a great way to conclude because the correspondent, the sponsor of this podcast, actually has an answer to that last um, point you made. You can follow writers at the correspondent. Mm-hmm. And each correspondent gets a great deal of freedom in how they define their beat and which stories they print. Mm-hmm. They don't have to go to Marty Bowen and get permission. But uh, in exchange for that extraordinary freedom, they have to interact with readers, and they're specifically required to craft a weekly email to the people who followed them oh, wow. about exactly what you said, which is what they're working on, what progress they're making, where they are in the investigation, what help they need, so that you do have a sense of something moving along. And they have to do it. Now, they don't necessarily like it all the time because um, sometimes it's interrupting the reporting they're doing. Right. But they're learning how to actually value that ritual. That's great. It's, uh, it's, and so that's, it's a start. Giving people, reporters work on deadlines, right? And if you give people a weekly deadline, it's a guarantee. They'll, I mean, it's more of a guarantee they'll do it. That's a great idea. David Farenhold of The Washington Post, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This is Jay Rosen from Fifth. 14th Street and K in Washington, D.C. for The Correspondent. Uh, And we'll see you soon. Chair is a production of the Amsterdam outlet The Correspondent, where journalists and readers meet. You can find us at thecorrespondent.com. Pull Up a Chair is produced by Romane Rodriguez and Erica Moore. That's me. Edited by Romane at The Correspondent Studio in Amsterdam. With thanks to Ian Inright from GoatRodeoDC.com for the recording stateside. Original music by Peter Van de Witte. Sign up for our newsletter. There you can learn more about David's innovative reporting, Jay's ideas for the press, and the correspondent's commitment to conversations that matter. Go to core.es slash newsletter. That's C-O-R-R dot E-S slash newsletter. It's easy. Be part of the conversation on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me where you're coming from, then tell me what you know.